will you do without freedom? Will you fight? Welcome to Leverage Addicts, the podcast for investors looking to maximize returns through leverage. Join host, seasoned mortgage professional and real estate enthusiast, Blandon Lerm, as we explore property investing strategies and learn how to navigate the market to build new wealth. G'day, Andrew Malcolm here, Mortgage HQ. I'm with Efren Nabi and we're talking about accounting and tax and invited him here because of his vast experience with the tax side of things after 10 years with the IRD and uh, various accounting roles uh, since then. So welcome. Hi, Andrew. How are you? Good, man. Good. Uh, let's jump right into it. Is there anything pre-IRD that you think is interesting or you want to tell us a little bit about how the IRD goes about auditing on the property side? Pre-IRD. I was quite young pre-IRD, so actually IRD was my first job and I ended up staying there for you know quite a long time, 11 years and a bit. It was involved in various roles. I actually started when I, one of the first things we looked at was property-related uh, GST refunds. So one of the things that IRD is always interested in is paying, ensuring that the people who get paid out in GST refund are actually, you know, claiming GST refunds legitimately. So we're in the team that looked at quite a bit. But yeah, over time, you know, IRD got a bit of funding and they actually created a property team because prior to that, it was uh, all over the place in terms of how they looked at things. So it was more became more strategic. So property's always been a big focus for IRD. We're that in regards to trading developers. I don't know if you know of the old Phoenix arrangements where you had some property developers basically set up a development company, you know, sell the development, pretend the GST and then liquidate the company and then off they go with another one. So it's always had a huge interest in ID and we've seen many, many law changes. And, you know, we, we are in current times where there's significant property law changes. Yeah, I mean, the construction side of property, there's a lot of rules around phoenixing and around payments for the construction side of things. And, you know, some of those clients that get into property development, they want to clip the ticket on construction as well. And I guess with phoenixing, the ID has a very long memory, right? And they can go back and claim, they can claim things from a very long time ago and that you have to pay. Yeah, I mean, let's put it this way. Some of the stuff people used to get away with back in the days is very, very difficult to get away with these days. So, you know, if you have an accountant um, advising you and, hey, this is this is one way we can you know avoid paying the tax on something or avoid paying GSD on a sale, yeah, I would get asked them exactly what why and maybe get a second opinion because yeah there's actually not that many opportunities these ways to get these times to get away from paying i mean you know every year like in the current times especially you know with lack of tax money with like all the covert costs uh, you know there's always focus on collection of debt as well so yeah you've got to be very very careful in sort of terms of what sort of advice you get but it's always going to be a concentration that already has one of the most expensive things out there property whatever to do with property you know they've got the hidden economy sector they've worked on with the construction workers and i believe you know at some stage and they're going to go back into those things again yeah they'll probably be excited for a cashless economy it's uh, much easier to capture tax if everything's digital yeah yeah or maybe we'll have bitcoin transactions going through it right so yeah i don't know about you but i can't remember the last time i used cash to pay for anything right it's quite unusual these days but yeah uh who knows what the future will hold? I don't know. We'll, we'll talk to some crypto f- 
fanatics out there. I wouldn't say fanatics, but crypto ex- enthusiasts. enthusiasts out there. They'll be saying, you know, fiat's out the way at some stage anyway. Yeah, yeah. And so the IRD side of things, are uh, you able to share any stories of big wins or losses for IRD? And it might be that you change some names and details, but is it fun? How do you celebrate success at the IRD? I had a long career with IRD. There's been a number of cases, you know, that we've gone through. I think for me personally, it's always been about, you know, facing the other side and, you know, looking at quite complex things and, and getting them on complex things. So my, my background at IID was in, I worked a bit in the tax avoidance area. Obviously, you know, you got property tax issues as well, but without going into too much detail about, you know, certain court cases, but it's always good when you can get someone on, um, you know, fairly, fairly, complex arrangement that they got thought they could get away with. I mean, like one of the cool things, like I don't know if you probably um, see on the papers, um, is when IRD does a raid on someone and you know, that seems to be the most exciting thing. So, you know, yeah, we was, was lucky enough to be involved in one of those ones where we didn't just raid or have a warrant access on the business premises, but also the houses and homes as well. So it can be quite an interesting experience just to get going through all that and then taking naughty taxpayers to court. But yeah, it's, I've obviously learned a lot and still I like to think have good relationships with people over at IID. I mean, they do a good job and yeah, we haven't seen any recent cases of the sort of stuff in the papers. I suspect you'll see this sooner or later more. Yeah. So if you want to avoid being audited by the IRD, what are the red flags that are going to raise concern that the IRD is going to look at you a little bit closer? You know, dealing with IRD, the main thing is some people, I think, take it like the more they hide or the more uncooperative they are, IRD is going to go away. The number one thing is, I think, yes, if you ever have any issues with IRD, like these days, like from when I first started to what's actually happening now, normally when back in the days of IRD issued a letter, there's usually something happening. But these days, IRD sends out what they call nudge letters or sort of campaign letters, which pretty much I would imagine most of the population receive this nowadays. Like, for instance, anyone who's, you know, sells a property may get a bright line letter. I think the main thing, important thing is obviously, as taxpayer can be quite a confronting thing, you know, getting a letter from IRD and asking questions. So the main thing is, I guess, you know, you want to get advice or from an accountant, make sure your accountant is on top of things. You've got that relationship with your accountant. And you want to get an accountant who's able to, you know, give you confidence that everything will be dealt with properly. And accountants should be in good communication with IID and deal with their issues on a prompt matter. The best thing is having those regular updates. I mean, what you don't want to do is get into any sort of aggressive things, uh, aggressive arrangements that clearly, like, if it sounds too, too good to be true, probably is too good to be true. So you want to obviously you know, stay away from those sort of things. Yeah, cooperate and be responsive, I guess. And can't get away from it. The IRD is not just going to magically forget. Yeah. And and look, the other thing is like from my experience, you know, IRD's got, you know, they know, New Zealand's not a massive country, right? They know most of the advisors that are out there. They know most of the accountants out there. And one thing you as, as a normal taxpayer may not know is that, hey, what sort of dealings has your accountant has had with the IRD in the past, right? But IRD does know that. So, 
you can come across sometimes accountants that have a number of clients that have had issues with avoiding not paying the right amount of tax and having various other issues. And, and there's always been cases. And You want to, instead of client testimonials, you need to get an IRD endorsement of your accountant before you dive in. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> but unfortunately, you know, due to secrecy, there's not a lot IRD can tell people. But I mean, you'd have to sift through. Oh, yeah, one of the things I do when I look into someone is I just Google search them and see what's their past history like. But yeah, like it's, it's always tough for clients. You know, they just get referred on to someone to, you know, act for them. But really, it's one of those. If IRD asks you too much questions and you have no idea why they're asking too many questions, sometimes you might ask that question of your accountant or yeah, second opinion on the accounting side of things is very valuable because even in this day, you know, the interpretation of tax law and how to file accounts is not binary. It's not this way or that way. There's a human interpretation to filing accounts, certainly for business side of things and anything that's getting up there on self-employment. There's going to be nuances that if you try and push the envelope on home office expenses or personal expenses or not paying tax on certain things and certain ratios, if you go to another accountant, they will have different views. No, 100%. I think one thing we can be lucky with uh, these days is now you can actually go and search into the IRD website or even Google and some stage and find links in terms of, you know, simple types of expenses that can be claimed or not be claimed. So some uh, clients can actually get that information themselves. So it's quite handy. But there's obviously, you know, certain things that are quite limited. Just uh, recently dealt with a client whose accountant had, so this client is a property developer and is also invest in property. So the client came up with a really complex setup of an arrangement where they thought okay, with this sort of arrangement, we could break the tainting rules. But so tainting is basically, you know, if you're a property trader and you buy a rental property after your property trader, then that's going to be taxable within 10 years if it's sold within 10 years, right? So this particular accountant had advised the client that, hey, tainting, one, they say tainting is going to last forever. And second, they said they could come up with an arrangement where there would be no tainting at all, which the only way really to avoid tainting is having two different groups of people who, you know, are a totally different group from the development side, from the investment side. So the person holding the rental property is not the person developing the property or they have, you know, certain shareholders that don't reflect that. But yeah, this particular accountant set up a couple of trusts where he thought he could do that, whereas ultimately they had the same people involved. So I don't know how much fees that they incurred from this really complicated structure, but yeah, definitely wasn't working. Again, it's one of those situations where, you know, it sounded too good to be true and probably wasn't. Yeah. And it's crazy that even you no know, chartered accountants out there that are registered with the regulatory body are still able to do things like this for clients and charge fees that certainly in your eyes that they're not legit. Yeah. I think, you know, one thing you've got to understand is like tax is complex. It is not easy. And the challenge for some accountants is I guess they want to attract clients. They're going to sell them a better product. They'll come to them and they'll do all sorts of things to, uh, you know, cover their butt. <laughs> in in that regards in terms of getting external advice. But the main thing I always ask my clients is, you know, if there's a certain structure being proposed or a certain thing being told, feel free to query your accountant and question your accountant why that's the case. Challenge your accountant. And if you find that they're struggling to explain you the reasons why, then maybe, you know, they're not comfortable or they're not 
that clued up in terms of you know giving the right advice. But yeah, it's it's not easy, right? You don't know what you don't know, and and it's changing all the time. Yeah, yeah. you've seen yeah. the changes certainly in the last few years with the current government. It's been a lot of rule changes, and and if there's a change of government again, you no, know, the changes might revert back, or there might be something new. And a tax law is a forever changing dynamic, and you've got to be doing your reading. I'm guessing. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, if you look back since the current Labour government came in back when close to six years ago, you know, so we've had significant changes in property tax side. Anyway, property tax used to be one of the most simple areas of tax, and it's now probably one of the more complicated areas of tax given the amount of changes. I mean, if I just you know wind back as soon as Labour government came in the first time, they got rid of the ring fencing of loss, rental losses. So you know, you could previously you could offset your rental losses against your personal income and now you can't you're only limited to offset those losses against rental income and then you know last the bright line went from two years to five years and now it's gone from five years to ten years the more recent changes and then i think the biggest one for a lot of property investors anyway has been the loss of interest deductibility which you know in some cases it's really eating into their profits there's many investors now who are actually making a loss but they're having to pay tax on the loss due to the lack of interest deductibility. And in order to get to interest deductibility, you have to come up with really fancy arrangements, you know, whether that's to invest in new bills, whether to change an existing house into a boarding establishment, or whether, you know, you want to rent out to social housing. It puts a lot of hurdles for investors who normally, you know, looked at property investors as an investment as a passive investment. There's a lot more to it. And obviously, you know, with the elections coming this year, if we have a change of government, then we could potentially see the wind down of all that. So Yeah, I mean, ring fencing of losses, bright line back to two years, interest deductions coming back. It would be amazing for investors, but it would also, I think, positively impact the rental market to keep rents low or lower because all the costs imposed on investors, they get passed on to the renters. And, you know, we, we have 80% of New Zealand renters, I believe, getting a government subsidy. Now, it just seems insane that we're making investments investors pay more, they're passing it on to the renters, and then the renters are getting subsidy from the government. It's just unbelievable the amount of work that bureaucrats have been able to create for themselves and the headaches and the, the non-traditional when you look globally about these changes. Yeah, no, no doubt about that. Um, I think uh, since the Labour government has come in, we've had an exponential growth in rent, right? Rental or tenants. So even like they've bought in healthy homes, a whole lot of other non-tax instruments and all that has done the idea was to make housing more affordable more safer for tenants but what's actually happened in fact is that housing has become a lot more unaffordable there's a lot more coming out of the government's coffers to i guess pay for the rent and you know the recommendation supplement there's very few people out there that are not receiving accommodations these days in terms of a proportion of renters and it's never ending right i mean if you have a government come in a new government come in and they got winded down all those rules i think you may have the first year where the landlords do not increase any rent because they will actually have more money in the pocket. I mean, imagine that. Yeah, I certainly feel there's a good case for 
or if government does change and bring these things back into play, property prices would keep going up. You know, if you look at healthy homes as one example, is like one of the worst offenders in not having their properties compliant is government, right? In terms of the social housing and the, the properties that government owns, that many, 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 a very high percentage of them are not compliant with healthy homes. And it's very frustrating given that the rules around interest deductibility don't apply to government properties. They still get those deductions because it makes sense for them, but not for... No, totally. I mean, like there's a lot of anomalies in terms of how some of the rules have been introduced. Like you remember when COVID was, COVID happened, the government introduced some tax packages where if you spent on a capital item to 5K at up to a certain date, get that whole amount as a deduction, right? So if landlords went out there and got their heat pumps at that date, heat pumps generally cost two, three, maybe 4K, they would get the deduction that particular year. However, if it was after that date, then it's capitalized and depreciated. So how is that fair? Like the ones who actually had the cash were better off versus the one who didn't quite have the necessary means for paying that. So it's been a lot tougher on the ones, the landlords who have been struggling to, you know, pay their bills. But for the ones who, like, I guess the top 5% of investors where even the interest deductibility probably doesn't affect them a whole lot, things haven't changed. If you're an established landlord with good cash flow and a good reserve, then you've been just fine mm. through this. So it's those people that are trying to break through and create real financial freedom through owning one or two rentals that in that stage of life where they can provide for the community of rental properties, but they haven't been able to make it stick. And no, totally. I mean, like one of my bugbears or frustrating things is like when I've read the reports around when the government came out with a consultation document about, you know, denying interest deductibility to landlords, the phrases that they actually used in the document was that they wanted to stop speculators and investors from piping up the property market and getting tax-free gains. And it just really put a damp, really went after the investors. And the term that they used was investors, right? Oh, sorry. The term that they used was speculators and referred that as referred all investors to be speculators. But the truth is that speculators, the actual property traders, they've been paying tax on their property trades all the time. The tax rules and the interest deductibles, whatever other rules that the government's brought in, does not affect speculators and traders one bit. If anything, it actually has been more useful for speculators. I'll give you an example. So if I have my property trader, right, and I go buy a property, I claim GSD, and now for whatever reason, I'm unable to sell my trade property, I decide to rent it out. Guess what? I can actually claim interest deductibility. If I'm a landlord who's decided to full-time property investor, bought a property long-term, I cannot claim any interest deductibility on existing homes, even though, you know, if I'm not going to be selling them within 10 years. But if I'm a property trader, which, you know, the government taints as the bad guys, I get my GSD refund, I get to claim interest deductibility. If anything, it makes the whole thing a lot easier for them. But for property investors who are just there to provide rental for tenants, yeah, not so much. Yeah, it does encourage property trading activity and no, even dovetails, I guess we can talk about some of the property trading you've been involved with, either your own deals or some of your clients' deals. Like It's been a tough, tougher time for property traders with the interest rates going up. How do you see things playing out at the moment? Yeah, I mean, yeah, definitely if we go back a couple of years when COVID first started, although, you know, all the economists were saying we're going to see a crash in property prices, uh, quite the opposite happened. And uh, it was a field days uh, for many property traders. I think in, in those times, you could potentially just buy a property, hold on to it, do nothing for it six months to a year and still realize significant gains. But yeah, now lately, you know, we looked at a property that we got last year. Thought we got an outstanding deal. So it was a big house, 200 odd square meters, bought it for 705K. And yeah, we thought we could see at least a million or so on the other end. That's CV on this one was 1.1 million. We bought right before 
there, you know, interest rates really started going up. And, you know, that property, which was going to turn out, you know, was a really good reno, did everything, gutted the whole thing out, spent 150k plus on the reno. And yeah, in, in the end, we ended up losing some, some money or maybe just breaking even. I want to use my accountant hat here. But yeah, it just wasn't worth the time and wasn't worth the effort. And it was, you know, someone's got a new house. In the end, we ended up selling it for 930 odd K. But yeah, couldn't see anything. And for the time and investment put in, wasn't that great. But yeah, go back a bit earlier, different story. I think right now, what's really killing a lot of property traders is the holding costs before what would be cost you around 15 to 20 K is now costing you double that amount. Yeah. And it's the speed of sale. Might take a little bit longer to sell because it's harder for people to get the finance because of most people's borrowing power has gone down and it's just like a hesitation for some you know, in general. So I guess that's why a lot of property traders have kind of moved out of the biggest cities into the regional cities because the margin for error is a bit higher and the competition is a bit lower. And, no, but I am seeing at the moment you know, property traders kind of starting to come back into the Auckland market. I guess it's just find the right opportunities. Yeah, I think the challenge at the moment is now look at a property deal right now is figuring out the end price on certain things because there's only so much a bank can lend on a property. And when you're looking to trade a property working backwards you know so you're working on your end price and then working backwards from there but yeah the challenge these days are you know i've noticed anyway that we've passed the bottom in auckland anyway and or in south auckland from what i've seen and the numbers some of these properties are getting is is you wonder how can you actually make a profit on that, especially if you need some lending on it. If you're looking at a 20, 30K margin on a trade deal, and I, I repeat, it's 20, 30K margin on a trade deal, not 150K that sometimes you get in from the news articles. It's, you know, your holding costs alone can eat up your profits. And so it's, it's not that easy. The difference there. of a profit is, is sometimes a week between the sale happening or not happening. And imagine if you had it all locked in and then uh, it didn't settle on the sale. You know, it could yeah. be another month or two of it being empty. Got a really Really make sure you got your cash reserves lined up and that you're picking the right property if you're doing trades at the moment. Uh, what about on the development side of things? You got any stories that you want to share or that are good or ugly? <laughs> I'm actually seeing some clients now. Obviously, the peak number of clients who got themselves a land have been finding it challenging to go and develop that and sell that for the end prices they're going. I mean, like I, I know of some new builds, for instance, right at the peak. So this is pre-completion. They were selling for a three-bedroom in Auckland, for instance, in West Auckland, was selling above 900k. And now those same ones, they've gone down below 800k. I've seen some two beddies that were high 700s. I've seen a recent one, they were pricing at 600. A number of people who have got, got these are trying to on-sell them or get rid of them. Otherwise, they may be losing the deposit. So that's with the current status of what I'm seeing the new build market. Developers, though, who have been able to pick up some land in the last six months or so, and then they're looking to get active. I guess what they actually look to build may not be what was being built, you know, some time ago. I've seen some more people looking, you know, you know, we have the ability to now build new builds with no car parks, right? But really, is any developer out there going to do that right now? Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, it does still for us seem seem crazy. And I guess it's location dependent. I, I, I was at a development that I think it was 30... It was like 32 new builds and there was like 20 car parks and they're all three bed, mostly investor stock. Now, it's potential was going to be like 90 something new cars and there was no parking on the street because it was all yellow lines. It was like a main road. This is going to be at least 50 cars a time in all these side streets more than there is right now. And I guess you're not allowed to have any visitors, right? Unless they can walk or get a bike in. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, there are very few developments I find that actually have proper facilities as well. Probably would have seen some of these developments 
development sites being flooded during those floods. You, know, you wonder well, like who's going to go and buy these ones. You know, they're going to be a very challenging spot. But yeah, I think developers in general need to think about, in my opinion, is what is the sort of stuff that's going to be attractive to people now? Do we need to look at maybe building an internal garaging? Do we need to maybe, instead of doing tourist homes, do standalone homes? You know, What is it that's actually going to attract people? Because right now, I think in the market, existing homes seem to be selling They and selling well in some cases, but we still haven't seen that shift in new build. So why don't you tell us a little bit about property deals that have required uh, work on an accounting side, negotiating with IRD or bank and like, what? tell me, what does a property accountant do that maybe a traditional you know, small business accountant doesn't do? So I guess ultimately, you know, from a property accountant where you should seek, obviously, the knowledge about property first and having that tax experience, tax background as well. You know, property tax, the scheme of things is not that difficult, but often people do get it wrong, right? So I had a client recently that came to us and said that, so they're buying a rental property, investment property that's going to be a long-term hold. Their accountant was telling them to settle the property in a GST registered entity. So then they thought that the GST registered entity, if they settle it in there, they will not have further compliance costs. They, if they had some losses in the GST registered entity, they could potentially offset against some of their rental income. And that will be the right thing for their client. In the particular case, what the accountant hadn't looked into was whether that was the right vehicle for them. Like one of the reasons why you never want to settle a rental property into a, a GST registered entity is the fact that it could get, get into the GST net. And the way that it would get into GST net is if the pro- a rental property is ever rented at short term. So if you can imagine rental property being you know rented on Airbnb for a couple of months, that couple of months premium rent that they get would mean that that particular property, when it's eventually sold, you'd have to pay GST on that. Because there's certain definitions in the GST Act that would taint that. And so when they're looking at that significant cost, the other thing was like, is what what is the right structure for the accountant, right? This is their first rental property. Do they need to put into a corporate structure? Why couldn't they just settle it under their own name? So in that particular case, the accountant suggested that it wouldn't be a good idea to increase put it under their own name because there'd be bright line issues. So, okay, so there'll be bright line issues if it was under your own name, but not under the company name. So these are the sort of questions you'd want to ask your accountant. When you find that there's certain things that, why are we doing it this way? Why not that way? It doesn't make a lot of sense. So, so one of the other things bright line now is if you actually uh, settle a property into a individual name or a trust or a look-through company, you've got the bright line rollover relief provisions, right? So if you decide to you know transfer the property out to another entity for restructuring purposes, you potentially will not have any tax to pay or no bright line gain as long as you do it properly. However, that does not apply to ordinary companies. So in this case, if once they've actually settled the property into the ordinary company, they're stuffed because if they ever want to restructure it, if it's done within the bright line period, they'll be starting a bright line date again once it goes to the other entity. So those are the sort of simple things that an ordinary accountant wouldn't be able to advise you on, but a property accountant would. The other very common one I see is a lot of the time from accountants is say, if you buy a rental property, put it in, in, in a look-through company. Why would you put a rental property company in the current tax climate, right? So the look-through companies, when, when they first came up, the reason why a lot of people put their rental properties into look-through companies is because they could offset those losses against their other income, right? So the income would flow, uh, sorry, the losses would flow through them and that could offset their salary and wages or whatever other income they offset it against. Once the loss ring fencing rules were brought in, that's it. 
you, you weren't able to do that. I mean, look, through, don't get me wrong. Look through company still has some advantages in certain situations, but for owning a rental property, it doesn't ha- hold the same advantages anymore. So, you know, those are sort of simple things that I guess some clients would go through, you know, for additional compliance costs, you know, putting in look through companies when you don't need to. And those are the sort of things that you'll get an answer from an accountant, a uh, proper property accountant versus the normal accountant. Yeah. I suppose it's good to ask if you get suggestions from a professional about following a certain course of action to, to ask, okay, so what if I don't? And if you don't and you incur some cost, but that cost is less than the cost of implementing, then it's worth weighing up you know, whether technically correct structures for something a bit bigger make sense, but you don't need it because the scale that you're doing it is small. Yeah, yeah. No, and I think the finer details are really important as well. So one account, uh, one client of mine recently was looking to just restructure their property put with those bright line rollover relief provisions. What happened there was the accountant felt, I guess, taught and that they could just transfer it all into a trust without actually figuring out the cost that they thought they could do market value. And so all the sale and purchase agreements were drafted. Everything was ready to go. Stuff had gone through their banks. Everything was ready. He just happened to make an off call to me and spoke to me. Uh, just some other property related stuff. I just inquired about, you know, how he was going and found out that, that one little thing hadn't been done, which was that they hadn't actually, you know, looked into the properties that were going to be transferred over during the Brightline period and whether the costs on that were, you know, recorded properly. So, yeah, basically, you know, just having a conversation with me saved my, this client of mine over $300,000 in tax because, you know, they're looking at booking over a million dollars gain for Brightline purposes. So it's, it's those little things. And yeah, I find it really funny when something like this does happen and they question their accountant and emails are exchanged. The number of users or things the accountants come up with to protect themselves or to say, oh, maybe now we got this wrong or we got that wrong. To actually get an accountant to fess up is not a common thing that you see. That's why you want to talk to as many people and have those relationships. Yeah. And the property side of things, like there's a lot of accountants out there that might help business owners, two or 300 of them every year. And they might only do like 10 property deals a year. If you're a property investor and you're getting into it and that that's the main way you're going to be making money and building your, your wealth, I think it pays to start with a property accountant to begin with. And if need be, you two or three different accountants, one for business, one for personal, one for property or, you know, some combination doesn't, you know, certainly for the different interests that I have, I do have different people and make sense to have knowledge in the right place. I think more importantly as well is that you want to have someone who's not just an accountant, but he, they understand tax law. Uh, they're able to analyze what the legislation says and, you know, off the cuff, they'd be able to even quote legislation references to you. I mean, it's a bit sure you, you're, like, you're dinner conversations <laughs> Pretty thrilling, man. Once you've dealt with so many of those, it just becomes a bit of a habit. You know, it may mean nothing to you and you'd wonder what what is the guy talking about. But I mean, you know, those are signs that the person actually knows their stuff. Referring to case law as well. I mean, not many accountants look at that. I mean, the more tax background, actual legislation background they have, the safer in their hands you're going to be. I would say, you know, there's a lot of accountants in the country, many, many accountants in the country, but you know, actually good, really good property tax accountants, probably not so much. Oh, it's been good talking to you, man, and, and hopefully we'll be able to have you around a little bit more often. And anything that you want to, to leave the listeners with about where they should look for more information about the, the property tax side of things and stay updated? or You know, property tax is an ever-changing 
environment, right? Like, like for instance, you know, governments, housing has always been a big thing for governments, whether it be a national government or a labor government. It's always been something that gets played around. I mean, believe it or not, it was the national government that first introduced the Bright Line rules back in 2015. So it's not like a labor thing. Obviously, once the labor government ca- has come in, they really give them a, 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 yeah, a, a <laughs> yeah. toehold to stand on. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Next, you know, we've got a 30 year Bright Line. And yeah, and then I guess, you know, you know, if the UB continue to have a Labour Greens government, then, you know, you're potentially looking at wealth taxes. Personally, in my opinion, I, I, although I think uh, the leader of the Labour Party has said that there will not be any capital gains taxes or wealth taxes in his watch, but from what I've seen, I, I couldn't believe that actually seriously considered wealth taxes. I actually think that, you know... How do cash flow wealth taxes yeah. going to be a nightmare? They'll be, it could crash the whole damn system because people don't have liquid cash to pay their obligation. Well, apparently from one of the ministers, I've heard that you can pay for burgers through the value of your asset increases and the economic income. Yeah, so I think it's always going to be a political football. I mean, whether we have the same government or a new government, we will see some property law tax changes. Thanks, man. Talk Thank soon. You. Cheers. Thanks.